Welcome to this topical life. Real conversation, real exploration, real life stories. A discussion about life, cause life ain't a vacation. And now, here's your host, Tiffany Murphy. Hello and welcome to this topical life. Today we have a special treat, Shelly Sokolowski. And guess what? She is my neighbor and she lives across the street and we are close to Halloween here. So we've got a little um, a treat towards the end of when we're going to be talking about with her house that she lived in. And this is just an amazing, amazing, amazing story. And you're not going to want to miss it. But first, we are going to learn more about Shelly. Shelly. Hi. Hello. Hello. So, um, gosh, so we've lived across each other for many years now. But um, over the years, I just have to describe her just as a true artist at heart. In everything she does, there's a flair for sure. And I have a huge appreciation that. And any of you out there who um, love to pick an artist's mind, this is what this is going to be like because um, she's got a lot of things in her heart and her mind and we're going to just dig it all out. So so let's start from how you Mm -hmm. became where you are now, like Shelly Sokolowski. Well, I was, uh, you know, one of those kids growing up and all I did was dance, music, and art as a kid. And mm-hmm. I was fortunate enough to have parents that supported that, like to the detriment of everything else, really. Okay, okay. Um, but I look back, you know, gratefully for that, frankly. Um, and I was really focusing on music as a, in high school. I thought I was going to be a musician. Um, went away to college, um, to music school, and... Um, when I was a junior, I had the opportunity to study in France for a year. So my dad and mom put me on a plane. This was before cell phones, mind you. So right. it's like a real you know, device. I like, mean, oh my gosh, I look back and I think, how could you do that? But right. they did. They pushed me on this plane. Um, get off in France. Don't. Well, I do speak French, but of course, it took me months to be able to order a croissant. <laughs> you right, know what I right. mean? Um But I was in Paris one weekend, and I walked into this medieval museum, and I came around a corner, and I saw these huge tapestries. They were the unicorn tapestries, if any of you know what those are. They're beautiful. They were made in, like, 1400. And um, they were huge. And I had this, like, my hair on my neck stood up, and I had this, like, feeling that... I had, I had to do this, that this was what I was supposed to be doing. Yeah. It was the weirdest thing in the world. Um, in retrospect, I thought, well, maybe I'd worked on those before, maybe in a yeah. former life. Um, but I had this awareness. And shortly thereafter, I'd gone on this trip with a friend down to Greece during our holiday break. We had a month off from school. And um, on holiday, on holiday. <laughs> and I love of course, we're, we have no money. So right. we like, we were training it all the way down. And we spent our last 50 bucks in Greece, like living on the beach. And okay. we had to get back to Paris. And we had like $10 left to our name. And the only way we could get back was to take this bus called the magic bus. The magic bus was this bus that went back and forth from Amsterdam to Greece to Amsterdam to Greece. I mean, you can imagine this is like the late 70s. So it's like, sketchy right um but but so we we took this bus and I sat behind or my friend and I sat behind this couple from Switzerland and I fell madly in love with this couple 
because I just thought they were the coolest thing on earth. And the, the woman knit the entire time. Wow. And I just thought they were so amazing that I wanted to be her. And okay. so I, when I got back to Paris, well, it took us four days to get back to Paris because the bus driver didn't want to pay for bus in what was then Yugoslavia because the cost of petrol was really high in Yugoslavia. So we ran out of gas, of course. We oh ran out of gas God. and we sat there in the snow for like two days. <laughs> and I just sort really of magical. watched this lady knit. And I thought, oh my gosh, I just want to be here. So by the time we did get back to Paris, um, I went to a yarn shop, bought myself some yarn, told the lady in French in the yarn shop that someday I would own my own yarn shop. And she looked at me like I was nuts, of course. But I did. I taught myself to knit. Um, and when I got back to the United States, I dropped out of the music school, got into the art school, and I started weaving these I started weaving. So, so that's like knitting into. to weaving to tapestry. Right. So I was started weaving, um, learning how to weave in college. And I was knitting still. It was something about the yarn, something about the material, Textile. working with my hands. Okay. Uh-huh. okay. Um, and, and after I finished school, I went back to France and I studied this particular kind of tapestry. I studied in a medieval, with master weavers, I studied in France. That is incredible. So that's how I got into what I do. Right. Um, so when I graduated from, with my undergraduate degree, I ended up moving down to Los Angeles um, and living there for a good 10 years or so, um, just weaving. I just wanted to live out of my car and weave. Wow. <laughs> just wanted to be an artist, living on the beach, someplace warm. Right. And I just practiced my craft the whole time um, and started showing work and developing my practice at that point um yeah so that's how I got into it and then so like in that process though like I mean I mean really to come up with an idea of what you do so like did you have mentors and stuff like that well in France I did and it was really interesting because this is in the late 70s early 80s now and there was a revival in the United States and actually in Europe well actually yeah there was a revival kind of sort of the anti well the post hippie movement I'd say okay. right there was this movement um to get back into these this weaving at that okay. time so I started to connect with different people around the country and in Europe who were doing the same type of things and there was a workshop out of San Francisco for people that were studying with some master French weavers who had come to San Francisco to weave um I went to France to weave and I actually met some people while I was in France who lived in New York and we ended up being friends for our whole life, you know, colleagues working with in the same kind of medium. Um, so there was a movement and we're still connected to this day actually. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So then, I mean, I, I remember when I first heard that you were an artist in the tapestry, I mean, tapestry artist, Mm -hmm. that's what it's okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, um, I went into your workshop and I felt like I was like, in the mind of you, like just, I was like, oh my gosh, like you just, your inspiration and like how you even start. I mean, really to start what you do, it's quite the process. I mean, to do one tapestry is like mm. forever. Like yes. how long does that take? Yes. So it's like you have to get inspired first. Well, as I said, you know, I, I was much more interested in working with my hands as opposed to being a painter that felt a little bit more removed from the material. Okay. So there was this relationship with the handiwork, if you will. Okay. Um, and there was there was something really important. I know now in retrospect that there is a neurological connection between working with your hands and your brain. Um, 
And when you work with your hands, it sets off neurons in the brain that opens up creativity and releases anxiety and stress. And if you think back to like the um, 19th century, the the institutions, the mental institutions, when they would make baskets and they would have have clients working on with their hands, yeah. it was for this very reason. This is before, you know, scientists really understood how this worked, but there's proven connection between the hand and the brain. Anyway, for me, working with the hand was extremely important, right? Well, it was like your calling, kind of. Absolutely. It was my calling. And, and, and over, and in the process, in the process, it, it really centers me. So even today, even though I do all these other things, teaching, etc., if I don't get into the studio every day, I'm off. Okay. So there's something about the handwork that's really critical. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And so, but to finish from a piece mm. is from start to finish yeah. would take how long? Well, gosh. So I mean, I know it depends to weave on a tapestry, time. Yeah. to weave a tapestry on the type of ancient loom that I do, um, it takes about 40 hours for one square foot to weave one square foot. 40 so hours. So it takes me a year to weave oh, one gosh. large piece, which is insane in a 21st century in terms of, you know, mass produced item how do you make a living with that right right Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. you kind of supplement with teaching I do um and with with another kind of loom that I have now too which I can explain that to you later right Mm -hmm. well I um I just remember walking in and seeing like you had like different fabrics and and like all your tapestries kind of have a story behind it kind of yeah yeah so tapestry is a really ancient super ancient method of storytelling and the um it used to be that only kings or churches could afford them, of course. Right. Your average Joe couldn't afford them. And weavers were, during the Middle Ages, weavers would um, have looms that would break down and put on your back pretty easily. And they would travel around the countryside and they would try to get jobs through kings or through churches. Um, and then they would get a commission and they would set their loom up and they would weave on site. Um, and the those weaving was like a storytelling device and they were often they were super prestigious because of the length of time and the gold threads that were put into these things so that they were they were a, a source of commodity back then in other words if you had a prisoner if like the french had a prisoner of the um flemish and the flemish wanted to trade a tapestry for the prisoner that's the oh, kind wow. of value that a tapestry had back then. Wow. Yeah. And so the stories that were told in these tapestries, um, of course, this is like before printing presses, right? The stories that were told in these tapestries were stories of battle or stories of whatever kind of propaganda that the client wanted to put into these tapestry works and hang in their castle. So like mm-hmm. when you say like working with your hands versus like what kind of textile you're working with. So like... For me, like I'm a textile person, like I'm super picky about fabrics, like I can't touch certain things and all that kind of stuff. Does that have any correlation to what you're putting together or is it more just the story behind it? Like, Mm. or like, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, that's evolved over time. I think early on, it was really important. I I understand that, that textile, textile sensory issue about touching. I can't stand to touch certain, for example, I can't walk barefoot on rugs that aren't like natural fiber really bothers me bothers oh, wow. my skin you're probably feeling the chemicals <laughs> <laughs> right I'm probably feeling the chemicals yeah but, but over time I had this other loom that is a 
off topic really but it's a it's a digital loom it's like the exact opposite it does make picture pictorial images but it's digital so I work with Photoshop and the loom reads Photoshop files with that type of weaving it feels more mm, appropriate for me to weave with plastics and these other sort of modern disgusting modern materials but in tapestry in the hand tapestry that we're talking about it feels more appropriate for me to work with like wool and silk and and natural fibers maybe because I'm spending so much more time touching the fibers with my fingers because every bobbin to make an image with this type of weaving every bobbin you have to weave in by hand I mean you've got like millions of bobbins running across the the width of the loom and so every time you make a color change you're changing your bobbin not throwing a shuttle like people might think of when you think of weaving if that makes sense yeah well, I mean, for anyone who doesn't know that kind of weave, especially the one that's not, I haven't seen the digital one set up, but the, I mean, does that cut the time in half too? Well, yeah, that's, that's, that's the, the, in theory. Yes. And you can see the difference. Certainly on my website, you can see the difference. Which you will get her website, FYI. And you'll, I mean, her installations are all over. I mean, you've got some locally that you could go see, like in or like mm-hmm. where in some mm-hmm. libraries and stuff. Yeah, Multnom- Do you have it, Multnomah? Um, well, Oregon State. Okay, Oregon owns State. Owns a piece. Um, Chemeketa. There's so- several call it Western Oregon owns a piece in their library. Um, the the AC Marriott on Third Street in Portland owns a piece. So, yeah, there's- isn't that incredible? Like you are like, mm-hmm. you guys are in um, a celebrity presence over here. Oh. Um, at least in your ears, you are. <laughs> <laughs> You're so sweet. I mean, but seriously, like, so walking into seeing something like that, like your loom and everything, it's like walking into a spaceship looking at buttons. It's just (laughs) nothing equivalent to looking at buttons, but you can just see the advancement of like every little part plays a role, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's just is what's so amazing about it that, man, I mean, it's like a mad scientist going in there. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. It's so cool. (laughs) So, 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 so cool. I mean, yeah. Anyway, I could go off on that, but anyway, so, um, so you're doing that and that's your time. And then, you know, and then you're also a teacher too. And so what do you, well, I, I wasn't so, so no, in my twenties and early thirties, I was just weaving. Okay. And I, I actually would teach workshops once in a while down in California. Um, and I really did enjoy the relationship aspect of, of the workshops, Mm -hmm. but, but for the most part, I was just 100% practicing my craft. Um, and it was in my mid thirties, I, um, my grandmother passed away Mm. and she had left me with a little bit of money not a lot, but a little bit. And I thought, okay, well, I could easily blow this all on material, right. yarn, and but I can't do that. You know, I need to, I need to utilize this in a way that's going to like bring back finance, financial security for me, right? Yeah. So I decided to go back and get a master's in art education, and so I moved back to Oregon. That's why I came back to Oregon. Okay, because you were in L. I was down in the on the beaches out south of L. A. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I, um, I came back to Oregon and, and it was the weirdest thing because I landed at my parents' house, mid thirties, not married, right? right? No children. Um, and that, that's a bit awkward. Um, but right soon thereafter, I was offered a position with the Salem Art Association, which is based in Salem, Oregon. Um, and the Salem Art Association has been around for many years, um, 
and I grew up in Salem, so I know this. Salem I know this area. And um, the Salem Art Association is is in a 100 acre park called Bush Park, Bush's Pasture Park. And I actually went to junior high school and high school and church right around this park. This park is like a big part of my childhood and life, where we would go play and hang out and all sorts of things. Um, and so the Bush, the Art Association is the barn of this adjacent to this big museum house called the Bush House. Okay. And so when I came back to Salem, I was offered a residency, an artist in residence position with the Salem Art Association. And what that meant was I was offered the living, to live inside the Bush House. So again, the Bush House was a historic museum that was built in 1847 um, by a man named Aishel Bush. And he was a widow with four children. And he ran the newspaper in Salem. So the house, I knew of the house. I knew of the park. um, But I'd never been in the house. And I got to live in the house. Which is, before we get into that, Mm -hmm. I just have to ask. I mean, Mm -hmm. because this is a whole new segment to to what we're going to talk about. But back to you with, you know, college and, you know, your grandma's money. That was really responsible of you and everything like that. But, like... Were your parents always really supportive of you being an artist and musician and all that kind of stuff? Because I feel like that's, you know, like pretty rare. Mm-hmm. I feel like, um, did they ever like, well, how are you going to make money? Or were they just like, be you? Or like, how were they? Right. How were they with that? You know, that's that's such a good question. They, they were super supportive. They were extremely supportive. As I said, my dad would just almost say, look, Shelly, this is all you can really do. So just do this. Don't do it. <laughs> you know, my dad yeah. would do that. Um, um, but it's interesting because right around this time when I landed back in their house at right. 35, he apologized to me. My dad apologized to me for always having been so supportive. He felt like that had been a detriment at that moment. Really? And I said to him, don't ever apologize, dad. I cannot tell you how grateful I am. So there was a moment, I think, later where he was like, maybe he did the wrong thing, you know, where he thought that. Right, because you were 35 mm-hmm. and all that. And then mm-hmm. this, so did that position seek you out or did you seek that position out? That position sought me out. Oh, that's crazy. So yeah. getting into the house mm-hmm. part, do mm-hmm. we want to go down to the house part right now? Sure. Okay, so this is, uh, so, okay, the house part, you grew up by the house, this specific house. Not far from it. I mean, I, I was maybe 10 miles away, but the... But this was a known as mm-hmm. a child, though, mm-hmm. that it was haunted. Well, you know, we used to... Joke. I mean, kid kid stuff, you know what I mean? We'd right. like... But there was a rumor that when... A, there was a rumor we all sort of bought into that there had been a crazy lady that was locked up in the house that had right. lived there. I mean, that's as much as I knew. I'd never been inside the house. I never really knew much about the house other than that it was in this park. And it was a beautiful mansion. Yeah. It's a beautiful man. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. then when you got offered like this position where you're like, oh, that's the house that we, the dead, that woman is. No, listed. you know, I didn't know. <laughs> not at that moment. I did not even register that, that memory. Oh, I didn't okay, register okay. the memory until later. Okay. But, um, but, but I was super psyched because, wow, I get to live in the house for free. I get to, I was going to graduate school. So I was part-time going to graduate school that's in insane. Portland. I was living in the house for free and there were some interesting duties that were connected to, the, to my responsibilities with the house. For example, I had to have a show, so I set up a studio in there, and I would have a show each year at, yeah. the, at the art museum. But um, 
But I was also, <laughs> this is strange, I was also required to um, clean the main part of the house for the muse- before the museum opened each day. So there oh. were a couple. So, so in other words, I lived in the servants' quarters, which was on the second floor of the house that you could only access by going up this rickety Otis elevator. Um, and I lived in the servants' quarters that was attached to the house. So it was part of the upstairs of the house. But there was a, there were these double doors that would lock, and I mean I would lock the doors so I could go in and out of the main part of the house. But the people on the tour couldn't come into my part of the house because right. the doors, yeah, right. So, so this position as artist in residence, not only did I have an art show, you know, periodically at the gallery, which was their barn next door, um, but I had to dust and vacuum before the tours on the certain mornings. And the other thing that I had to do was um, during the holiday season, I would have to get up at four in the morning and go down to the kitchen where they would have this, oh my gosh, it was this wood stove that was probably seven feet long huge wood stove and I'd have to build a fire in the wood stove it was actually made by the prisoners in at the penitentiary that that Aishel Bush hired these prisoners to come make this incredible stove wow yeah and I would have to stoke a fire in the stove started at four in the morning so that it was hot enough to bake cookies at 7 a.m when the little children would come in during the holiday season to have cookie baking Wow. I know. So that was the other thing that I had to do. Okay. <laughs> it's a lot. It was Four crazy. Four in the morning, that's a lot to ask. Yes. Yeah, it was. It was. I it mean, was. come on. Four in the morning. <laughs> right. So. So then, but then, okay, how did the house thing transpire? So, like? so the house, okay, so all of a sudden I find myself in a rent-free situation where I could make my artwork, I could go to school part-time, and I could be an artist, right? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was amazing. Um, so, so, so that, that happened. I actually lived there for seven years, Wow! but, um, I had a dog and she lived with me for a while before she died. But, um, I had brought her with me from California. And so I set up this really fabulous life in that park. And, um, and so, well, what, what? <laughs> so I remember it being like December. Okay. I remember it being December when I moved in. It was okay. pretty cold outside. And I knew that the house had just had like an HVAC new heating system and air conditioning system installed. Okay. okay. They just had this new system installed. And so I was fortunate to be like one of the new, one of the only people that got to live in that house when it was, you know, right. comfortable, right? right yeah. um, because there were a lot of artifacts in that house. I mean, you'd have all the clothing of the Bush family. You'd have, I mean, all their furniture, their paintings. I mean, it, it was still intact in the house. Harpsichords. I mean, it was amazing. If someone broke in and like took a bunch of stuff, would mm. you be held liable? Well, the house was on a sonotrol system, which was, in a, you know, a, an alarm system Uh so if every time I'd enter the house I'd have to shut the alarm system off right um and the alarm system was directly connected with the Salem police oh okay don't want to mess with that (laughs) so you'll hear some interesting stories about this but um but the house was quite secure in terms of you know being safe and then during the day like Monday through Friday or whatever during the working hours there would be a museum curator who would work in the house oh okay. so she would come yeah Got it. but at night I was the only or on the weekends I was the only person in the house right right um but what was really interesting is because I was cleaning and dusting and you know I would go into the main part of the house every single day there were 
areas in the house that would like give me the creeps. Like I, I remember this one area right below the staircase and it would just like, I'd be like shivering to go near it. And there were places, there were like spots in the house that would freak me out. And interestingly, my dog, she also would stand by those locations and bark. Whoa. Yeah, yeah. Oh, weird. I know. It was kind of creepy. And I would remember sometimes I'd want to go in there at night. I'd want to go in there at night and like force myself to be brave. I had to force myself to be brave a lot in that house. It was amazing, but it's also kind of spooky. Well, yeah. Did you like try to talk yourself out of it? Or yes. Did you? I would, my mind all the time, I would overcome my fears constantly. Yeah. Oh, weird. Yeah. Yeah. But it was so gorgeous and it was such an experience that I wasn't going to let that one go. Right. Right. So. You can put up with the creepy feeling for a while. Well, I felt really intrigued more than anything. Okay. You know, it was like so interesting. Um, Did you do more research on the family? Well, so anyway, so I'll t- yeah, I, over the over time. Well, what happened was it was a December when I moved in and there was a really, I had, let's see, I had a kitchen. My living room was actually the sun, had been the sun's, there was one sun and it had, had been his bedroom. So part of the house part of the main part of the house wasn't just their servants' quarters. You know, I lived right. in both the servants' quarters and part of the main house. Um, the bathroom had this, like, a 10-foot-long clawfoot tub. It was outstanding, wow. right? And I loved my bathtub. Yeah. So, and that had par- been part of the main house, too. But then there was some, my kitchen and my bedroom and my little studio. That Those little spaces had been servants' quarters. Okay. So um, there was an extra little staircase that went down into the main kitchen where that stove was, where I would make cookies, yeah. right? Um, from my from the servants' quarters house, there was a little back stairway that went down there um, if I didn't want to go through the main front two double doors. But um, when I first moved in there, it was December, and it was cold. It was cold outside. And I would, you know, heat the house, heat my part of the house, no problem. Um, and I would love taking hot baths Mm -hmm. and when I would get out of the bathtub often it would be freezing like all of a sudden I'd just be chilled to the bone and I would look go over to my new thermostat it was a new thermostat because they just put this HVAC system in and I would notice that it was pushed all the way over onto cold air coming in right like you'd have to take this little lever and click 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 it over all the way to the cold so I'd be like whoa it's must be you know, how did it get shifted over there? So I'd push it back to the heat and then it would be warm. And this would happen a lot. Like every couple of days, every time I took a bath and I'd be like, what is going on? Right. And so that's creepy. Yeah, it was, I kept thinking I must be doing it myself. I'm going to be super conscientious of my not doing that, you know, right? or maybe there's something that's like wrong with this thermostat. So it keeps doing that, but it kept going. So, you know, I, I was stumped by that. Um, and then I also had this geranium. Well, I don't, couldn't have been a geranium at this time of year, but maybe this was a few months later. I had a geranium flower in a pot on my kitchen table. And mind you, I lived on the second floor. So the only way you could get up to my part of the house, not by not, you know, not coming through the main museum from the back was this rickety old Otis elevator so it was really impossible to break into my part of the house and people couldn't just come over into my house right Right, right. um and so I had this geranium pot 
sitting on my kitchen table and I put my finger in it one night before I went to bed and I realized it was dry. And I told my dog, I said, Simone, I remind me to water this in the morning. Okay. Yeah. And I went to bed. And when I got up the next morning to make coffee, I was making coffee and I looked over at my table and there was no geranium on my table, just the bowl where the geranium had been sitting in and a few dirt crumbs. And I'm like, what, what? did I do with my geranium? You know, uh, what did I do with my flower? So I looked in my bathtub. I looked, you know, I couldn't find it anywhere. I never found. And it was big. It was a big plant. I never found it. Okay, that's just... So now I'm like kind of getting creeped out, okay? Now, mind you, during this time, I also had gotten my teaching license. Okay. Okay, got my teaching license. So I had my brand new teaching license. Master's. Yeah, master's in teaching, and, I, and from the state, you're issued a teaching license. Yeah. And I had it in a special drawer in my bedroom, and I it was gone. My license was had disappeared. Whatever. I know, right? What? Weird no. stuff, weird stuff. So I'm like, okay, what did I do with my teaching license? I don't know. I had to order another one. Um, so I ordered another. So thing, little things were going on. Little things were happening. And I started to go, what is going on here? You know, something's going on. I don't know. So one of the, at this point you were kind of convincing yourself that you were out of it and that there, yeah, okay. Yeah. For sure. For sure. Okay. Um, and so one of the things that I needed to do once a year was to go down to the very basement. So the house is a three story house and in the very, very basement, it's like an unfinished basement for the most part. Lots of things are stored down there, but there's a locked room, no windows. It's a locked room and it's the archives. Ooh. And one of the things that I'm supposed to do in the archives once a year is to just go in there and dust. And the only people that have access to the archives basically are myself and the museum curator. Right. Okay. So um, it was time for me to do that. So I went down there and I um, realized that everything in the archives, all their letters, their pictures, everything about the family history was in the archives. Ooh. So of course I'm curious. Yeah. So I'm looking around. And cleaning and being respectful, but also looking. Sure. And I come to realize that there are four children, not three. In other words, in the main part of the house, um, you have a lot of p paintings, portraits painted that were hanging on the walls of the family. And you knew who the father was. And you knew who there were two daughters and a son that were pretty celebrated. But there was a fourth daughter. That was okay. sort of missing off the walls of the house. Oh. And I realized this from the archives. I'm like, wait, what the heck? So I got very curious and I started rummaging into her information. Come to find out that she was diagnosed with a mental illness at 19. And more importantly, she was an artist. What? Because I found letters that she'd written to some famous artists of the time where she wanted to go study with them. And I found her sketchbooks. So, of course, now I'm like, whoa. That's <laughs> I'm super interested in yeah. this. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so that night, I mean, I must have spent 24 hours in You're like, I don't know. got a lot of dusting done. <laughs> I got a lot of dusting there. <laughs> and the next morning, they were going to, I think the museum had been closed for a week for, for whatever holiday it was. And... So the next morning, I had to go in there into the main house. I hadn't really gone in there to clean for over a week. And I went in there, and the entire main floor is flooded with water. Yeah, flooded with water. I'm like, oh, oh no. my gosh. 
is the water coming from pipes from my bathroom, right? From my tub or something? Right. Because nobody's been in the house but me the whole week. So I, and mind you, this is like right after I rummaged all this information up. Right. So I called the city right away and the, they had city workers that came out to sort of investigate. And there was this man who'd worked for the city for many years and he used to tell me, you're really brave to live in this house. You are like so brave. I don't know how you do it. He used to tell me things like that. He was an old man. Okay. You know? And um, he he actually told me at one point that the daughter who we're talking about, her name was Eugenia, and that she had drowned in my bathtub. That was her bathtub. She had died in my bathtub. Not sure that it's true, but he told me this. Okay. 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 Um, but he went looking through the pipes and he said, it's not coming from your bathroom. It's not coming from your part of the house at all. It's actually coming from a sink in the very front bedroom of the house upstairs. And see, in the bedrooms, they all had their own little sinks, Mm -hmm. right? And so in the front bedroom, which had been the girl's bedroom, the sink was turned on running. And that had run through the pipes and had flooded the house somehow during the week. So now I'm thinking, maybe somebody's upset that I've gotten or somebody's upset that I've gotten this information right right like you're digging mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. like some 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 yeah and also I wanted to like with where's the curator in all this like is she because she is she right mm-hmm. she was kind of in and out of the house too a little bit she was but she wasn't there I mean we 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 spoke you know I might have met up with her once a week at the most or once a month and she would tell me specifically where I should clean for whatever but she wasn't we didn't really pass through each other right not often okay so like you never like mentioned to her like hey is this kind of I don't remember ever having that conversation I don't know why but she wasn't there maybe she was there only three days a week or something like that you know she wasn't there I I was there all the time and she wasn't there that often okay so when the flood happened were you like have to tell every, you know, tell yeah. everyone. Well, I told the city because yeah. that, that's who I went to first. And, and I told you how, what happened with them. And right. I felt like, okay, I think I'm digging up. Someone's I'm digging off. something up and it's opening the floodgates is, is how I felt. Right. Okay, yeah. So it was that experience that I decided I wanted to make work, artwork based on telling this woman's story because I realized she was a secret she was, but you didn't talk about that back then. You didn't, mental illness was like a real taboo. Sure. And, and you hid it. You did not talk about that. You, you covered it up. Yeah. And so I decided to base this body of tapestry work on her story and her family's story. So as I said, the prop pieces take about a year to make. So I spent the next two to three years making a body of work surrounding her story and telling her story and I was really nervous because I was afraid part of me was afraid that if I exposed it because I had to have a show and show this work if I exposed it to the public that like it would be terrible right Right. like they would be very yeah I was really worried about that but I did it anyway I did good for you and during here's another thing that happened so during this time period where I'm making these works cleaning the house, living in this, whatever's going on, stuff is going on. Um, Every summer, the Salem Art Association hosts the Salem Art Fair, which is a really big art fair. And 
part of my job was um, to close the house up after the night. So this, well, I should say the art fair goes on from like a Friday, Saturday, Sunday on a weekend in July. And there's grounds crew that would always have like um, be stationed in the basement of the bush house for, and they would set the grounds up and they would sort of party together at night. And then it was my job to go make sure the house was completely locked up and that everybody was out of the house each night during the art fair. Yeah. Okay. Um, so it was on maybe, maybe it was closing night. I think it might've been a closing night. So that would have been a Sunday. And I made sure when I closed up the house at about 10 PM that there was nobody left in the house. Everybody was out of the basement. There was nothing left. And, you know, so I, went to bed and in the middle of the night I got a phone call from the police so the phone rings and I answer the phone and it's the police and they say there's breaking glass in the northeast side of the basement room don't go downstairs but we want you to make make you aware okay like so, like mm-hmm. someone like they were suspicious someone had broken in or something. Yes. So okay. Solange Hall, the the alarms had gone off, and they oh, specifically okay. heard breaking glass in a specific room. Oh. Okay. Okay. So I look out my window, and I see the house is surrounded by SWAT team. Oh my god. Right. And you I'm like, oh my god. <laughs> and then they call me back, and they say, "We want you and your dog to run out of the house, and we want you to come out through the front door." So that meant that meant I had to like bust open the double doors, take my dog and like go down these front stairs. And I mean, I was skipping stairs like 10 at a time. I I was so scared. I mean, yeah. Ran out of the house. And then they went, the police went through the house and they spent like an hour looking through the house and they couldn't find anything. So they came back to me and they said, we want you to take us through the house into every nook and cranny that you know of. So I did. We went through every nook and cranny. Wow. And we never found anything. Nothing broken. No glass. Nothing. So it was shortly thereafter that I had to cut my pieces off and have a show. I was going to have a show at the art gallery next door. And I was scared to death. Yeah. Right? Right. But I did it. And everything stopped after that. Everything stopped. All the stuff in the house stopped. One of the colleges that is in Salem, Chemeketa, it's a community college, bought that one piece and it hangs right there in their library right where you check out books. They own the piece. Um, This particular piece where I was telling her story. story. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. So I think I mentioned to you that I think of art as a healing practice. So I think of it not only as healing myself, but healing and my students, because I teach art, I've been teaching art for 25 years now. Um, But I think of it as healing. I, I, I just feel convinced that it was a way that healed her as well. Right. Something was loose. Mm -hmm. Something was loose. Mm -hmm. Well, she'd been the secret. She'd been covered up. Wow, that is something. So like when it was all said and done, did you feel like a sense of like, like in the house, did you feel better in the house or did you still kind of feel the same, you know, you know, you didn't really think about it? it, That was a course of, it was a course of six or seven years that I lived there. I think I felt like I'd done what I needed to do there. You know, like it was time for me to go at that point. I felt resolved. I felt some resolve. So 
Yeah. So like the piece was done, you had the art show and then what was the next part of your, like the house is the house. Well, so yeah, I mean, I lived there for, like I said, seven seven years years, and I did numerous works after that. Right. Based on the same series, actually, Oregon State bought another one. Um, Western Oregon has another one, you know, so I mean, several years worth of work going out here, right? Right. Um, But there, there did come a time where I felt like I was ready to to move on yeah and I I did I bought I bought a house and I moved on and by then I was teaching full-time too so so like when um like when you sell a piece or that kind of thing like do they do you just approach like how does that work like do you have the studio and then they come out you have the art show and then they they kind of come look like you invite people and then they come and look and then they buy from there is that how does that work uh, well well if you're at a gallery if you're showing in a gallery or, yeah um or in a show I'm not the one that's like promoting it as much as the gallery is promoting it right, right? so so I'm not really inviting people oh I might have a mailing I do have a mailing list I'd take that back but um but really the gallery would be promoting it and and if, for example, the way the, these works were sold, you'd have like a college who built a new building and they want to put artworks in the building because in the state of Oregon, 1% of all public buildings, 1% um, goes towards art. It's called 1% for the arts. Okay. So the Oregon Arts Commission is actually um, in charge of that piece of it. So um, I've sold works in various ways. So for example... Um, you have a representative who works with the Oregon Arts Commission who knows of my work, who thinks this would be a good potential um, piece to or a commission for this particular building. And then there's a committee who is in charge of looking the work over, and it's often um, comprised of professors, art professors, and other people who work in the whatever the building is, and architects or something. Um, so there's a variety of types of people that will judge different presentations and so you'll make a presentation and you might get selected and you might not so often you're paid for the presentation um, a small um, stipend but you might not get the commission right yeah right does that answer you so like Mm -hmm. how many commissions have you had Mm. well I have private commissions too Um, I've had public and private commissions oh gosh Um, six seven eight wow commissions that's nuts um and and then and then sometimes you'll have work that people want to buy, right? Sure, people will just yeah. buy it, right? So yeah. often they're like, I notice that women, um, often like professional women, mm-hmm. like the work. I think it, there's something about the femaleness of the tactile yeah. medium right. that's attractive, um, but also the story, you know, the, yeah. the fact that it's a compelling in some way mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah and I think that's a sign of being well-traveled too because I don't mm-hmm. think you see that a lot of that in the United States well the appreciation it, well that's for sure I mean it's I it's that you don't I don't think people understand the debt they don't understand or value as much and I mean that's something that we talk about as art educators often um, in in our school system we don't promote the arts like they do in other parts of the world Right. You know, in other parts of the world, art is part of life and is valued as such. And in our mm-hmm. in our society, it's sort of considered frivolous or off to the side, which 
in my opinion, really hits the mark. I mean, misses the mark because in our practice, not only are you working with your hands and there's this neurological connection to the brain and the capacity to unleash your creativity is so extremely important to mental health. Right. Um, it just kills me to see that we haven't gotten it yet. You right, know? right. Especially yeah. with the escalating social media or mm-hmm. <clears throat> not social media, but just like the use of technology and mm-hmm. incorporating that in their life and then doing this art stuff too. Yeah. I mean, I'm a huge component of art mm-hmm. myself and, um, and you know, like when you were saying like healing and stuff, I'm trying to think of like times where I've used art as healing. Like I've just never really thought of it as, as such. I mean, mm-hmm. I know you've like, has there been an incident in your life where you're just like, you pour yourself into something because of you're trying to heal from something like actually made that a decision to do? Well, I did. Or do you use it like as an escape kind of? <laughs> I think those, I think those are two of the same things. Yeah, exactly. Right? right. And, and I, well, first of all, I don't think I was really aware until later in my profession, later in my career, later in my life. I don't think I was aware of the healing aspects. I just knew that I needed to do it and it felt Good. It, it was important and it felt, it, it gave me peace, right? Mm-hmm. And then I noticed too what it does for my students. What being able to create something, just the act of creating, the act of working with your hands. And then in addition to that, the feeling one gets from having accomplished that in the end. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I see, I mean, I've raised my own child with, with that mentality, mm-hmm. right? And I can see what music has done for him. But I see what this does for for you know, and it doesn't just have to be making artwork. It can be folding laundry. It can be DIY tasks. It can be, you know, raking your leaves or gardening or cooking. There's all sorts of ways to be creative. It yeah. doesn't have to just be, you know, making a weaving, making a painting, right? Right. Right. And I think that's important to stress. But because we are such a sedentary um, culture and we are becoming more and more sedentary all the time, yeah. right? I think it becomes even more acutely important to to bring the arts into our daily routine habits yeah well it's like I mean you know there's a lot of talk um like doing meditation um being intentional um taking time out self-care you know like what are all that you know intentional health basically like listening to your body I mean, I'm so glad that mental health is becoming less of a stigma, that it is becoming more like aware, you exactly. know, and giving people the, you know, but that finding ways to actually cope or, you know, exactly. heal from something like that. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I like, I like the, I like where that is going because I feel like that feeds me too. Like, exactly. Very right brained for the mm-hmm. most part. Mm-hmm. Um, it is an escape. I've always, it's funny because my sisters and I, like, we didn't have a lot of money growing up. Like, um, my dad traveled a lot and my mom, um, we had like one car and so he would take the car traveling. And so we like didn't have a car and, um, we, my mom would just like go and get like all these crafts and stuff. And, um, we would just do crafts, crafts and crafts and crafts. And it's like, I just remember that so clearly. And it's funny because my sisters don't really do crafting that much, but I'm kind of more like, bring that into our life. And I think, and I'm the one that actually struggles with some mental, like, um, take meds and that kind of thing too. Mm -hmm. And just find a lot of like 
I bring that incorporate in that yeah. in our lives, you know. Yeah, it does. It does make a I difference. Know. It does. Even for my kid that doesn't like art at all. Right. I mean, that's right. It's a win-win. That's right. It's a win-win. I know. It's a I win-win. Know. Yeah. So when I go to, I have a residency coming up in Italy. Okay. Really yes. soon. Yes. Um, when I when I am in Europe, I feel so. I just there's something about. I think it's just because art is everywhere and it's just so much a part of life. I just feel much more, I don't want to say at home, but I just feel so much more validated. Okay, yes. Yeah. I feel validated. That's what it is. Um, and here I feel split in half, mm-hmm. you know, not, not appreciated. Sure. At all. Right. In, in a big way. Right. This huge side, you know, except in small pockets. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's 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 really sad. I think yeah. that's very sad. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I have a I have a residency coming up, um, and it's it was provided to me by the Chivita Institute, which is a which is a um, it's an institute. I hate to use the word institute, but it's a it's a program that's based out of Washington, and it's connected to the University of Washington. Um, it was started by um, a woman named Astra Zarina. And she was a professor of architecture and urban studies at UW. And she's passed away in the last decade. But she would take her students in the 60s to Rome to study the art. And there's a hill town outside of Rome that's built. I mean, it's Etruscan, so it's really ancient. And it's built on a hill. And the erosion over the years have caused the hill town to the house is to fall off the side of this hill. Oh. And the donkey trail that used to you used to access the um, town has eroded away. So the only way, they built a footbridge. The only way you can get there is across on this footbridge. Oh, wow. So um, it's it's operated by a lot of the architects of, from, the uni- from Washington have gone over there to restore this area. Um, but the Chivita has some a cluster of houses on this hill in this hill town so i'll be doing a residency living in that town for two months and then when i get back to the united states on my digital loom be making a series of woven digital tapestries so it's a little different than the hand tapestries we've been talking about um that are based on uh, my experience when i'm as living there wow so i'm going to be having a show in april of 2020 um at the uh, pacific university um, I'll let you know about that. Oh, coming up. Heck yeah. Yeah. I mean, 2020, that's coming up. Oh, I mean, 2021. Okay, I'll be there in like, 2020. I was Ooh. like, wait a second. That's like, in yeah, a few I'm, I'm, I'm going from February <laughs> till April 2020. Oh I'll be gosh. living there. And then when I come back, I'll be making the series of tapestry work based oh there. My gosh. And then so 2021. Yeah. Will be well, the I show. can't wait. I cannot wait. Well, I just feel like you across the street. And then Joaquin too. I think I mentioned this in the the, the podcast with him is that with his flute playing and your tapestries, I'm like, and her garden. <laughs> oh yeah, I love like, that you like that. Oh my gosh, Thank her you. garden. Like, you just like you know, like when you see someone. I do have an appreciation for the arts. I do. And you know what? The word that you're looking for, I think, is called misfit. You're a misfit <laughs> or an outlier or whatever. Yeah, yeah, you know, you're a misfit. I'm a misfit, and I teach my kids to be misfits. That. <laughs> that you have to find where you're different. 
You have Ooh, to. It's your nice. job that's to nice. find that because whatever that is is what you that's nice. are what you offer. Thank you. So I appreciate it. And I know people that are listening will appreciate it. And you're in this like special little pocket of West Lynn. And it's a privilege to know you. Thank you. And I mean, we've had so many good times, but like I've gotten to know you more like on a personal level, like hangout level. And then I hear like what you're doing and I'm like, <laughs> what is this? What? You're so like cute. you're so humble. I love you. And, um, and I, you know, in my spare time, if I ever get any spare time, which I will, I swear I'm going to contact Jerry Jones of the Dallas Cowboys Stadium and be like, you are missing out. Oh my gosh, you're so funny. This tapestry, because I've seen the artwork at the Dallas Cowboys Stadium. Oh. And it's yeah. like that, his wife, I don't know her name, but she has true taste, nice. great taste in art and variety. You know, I mean, tap a woman into that tapestry world. I mean, you're, you're so awesome. seriously. I mean, I don't know how to do that, but I don't know. There's got to be somewhere of someone that's going to hook me up and that's going to like be like, let's get Shelly into the Dallas Cowboys Stadium. Awesome. I mean, you don't even have to be a fan. I, it seems like when you go to that stadium, it's not just about football. Hmm. It's about so many other things. Wow. Lots of entertainment, lots of um, charities and this and that. It's totally multifunctional, which I used to be so against like – why are you building a massive stadium just to have like these huge, it just seemed like so gross, you know? And then, but when I got there and I did the tour, it's actually like totally not what I thought. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing. And so anyway, but there's this one part of the stadium that is just so much artwork and just like, you just almost kind of step into like a different wow, that's nice. realm kind mm -hmm. of. And I'm like, mm -hmm. okay, this is not a typical stadium i wish i could have stayed longer to kind of tour wow. more of that stuff and get more of the labels of what was going on but i felt like okay his wife has taste bigger the yeah i just was like super impressed so nice. anyway but anyway nice. back to you shelly thank you for telling this the you're telling us about you and your um your experience in salem too with the halloween house that <laughs> we're kind of talking about <laughs> <laughs> however however i say that what is the house name again the house is called the bush house okay yeah so they could so someone could look it up now but now it's just yes. a it's a museum it's still a museum nobody okay. lives there anymore they do okay. not they no longer have residents artists living there i think they've maybe only had three me being one of them i don't know if that's true or not but okay. they don't they no longer have anybody living in the house okay yeah uh-huh the bush is... bush's house and bush's pasture park and the Salem Art Association. So you could go visit it yourself. Mm -hmm. And we will have all the websites and everything you need to know about Shelly. And thank you so much for coming and talking with us. Thank you, Tiff. You've been listening to This Topical Life with Tiffany Murphy. Available through Podbean, iTunes, and Google Play. Look for us on Instagram and Facebook. Donations to help support This Topical Life can be made through Patreon at patreon.com front slash this topical life likes and comments are always appreciated and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode we'll see you next time for more real conversation real exploration real life stories on this topical life because life ain't a vacation <laughs>